Okay, um, we're now in for a treat. Um, as you all know, uh, Eric Dar, who is Professor of Medicine at UCLA and uh, Chief of the Division of HIV Medicine at Harbor UCLA uh, Medical Center, uh, is here to talk to us. Um, and we've asked him to give us a presentation on uh, investigational approaches to antiviral therapy. Hello, Eric, welcome. Thank you so much, Ron, and um, good morning, everybody. I really appreciate the opportunity to come and talk to all of you and to be a part of this, what is always a fantastic symposium, and I'm looking forward to some of the case-based discussions later on in the day. Uh, it's also wonderful to talk about a topic in which there actually has been a lot of things that have changed, and very recently. In fact, a lot of new data from CROI that I'm gonna share with you that Connie was kind enough to not include in her CROI update. Uh, focusing more on the uh, antiretroviral therapy. So we'll talk about investigational approaches to therapy. Uh, these are my disclosures, our learning objectives, and let's go ahead and start. And I think everybody hopefully is very familiar with the most recent DHHS and ISUSA guidelines. These are fairly current uh, since both have been updated relatively recently. And uh, follow this trend globally now. I mean, literally globally, uh, moving more towards integrase-based first-line therapy. As many of you know, the World Health Organization has even moved towards dolutegravir as a preferred first-line option. And you can see what's listed here. They're all integrase-based, and they're virtually identical. Really, the only difference is raltegravir remains as an integrase option on the DHHS guidelines. Um, but otherwise, they're very similar and very similar to the European guidelines, although some of those, for a variety of reasons, are a little more permissive of continuing to include things like PIs and non-nukes. And it is important to realize also that these are sort of the preferred options for most people. It's, it's understood and it's well outlined in the guidelines that there are select individuals in which other options may be preferred. But this is a good starting point for somebody who's starting therapy for the first time. Uh, one of the big transitions that have happened over the last year or two is the advent of dual therapy. And I'm going to really focus a lot on that because if you think about what's new above and beyond where we are right now, it really is the opportunity to use regimens that perhaps include less drugs. And this is both for treatment naive and for those who are stably suppressed who want to switch therapy. So it all really started, well, if you really ask where it started, it started 20 years ago with several failed studies, right? Using first-generation protease inhibitors with, as part of a two-drug regimen with high rates of virologic failure. And then this was really abandoned for a long time. And it was the Gardell study, which was published several years ago now, that was the first study with a reasonable regimen that demonstrated in treatment-naive individuals that you could use a two-drug regimen, in this case, boosted lopinavir with lamivudine. And they compared that to a standard three-drug regimen and showed very high rates of virologic suppression in both groups. And this was true even in a subset of individuals, a relatively large subset of people had viral loads of over 100,000. And it's been incorporated in the guidelines as one option for treatment-naive people looking for a two-drug regimen, such as those who can't use abacavir or tenofovir, but acknowledging that lopinavir-ritonavir is no longer a preferred boosted PI because of tolerability issues. And then comes along a natural study, which is looking at one of the preferred boosted PIs, darunavir-ritonavir 
with 3TC or tenofovir disproxyl fumarate, and this was the ANDI study. And this is a relatively small study that included just about 150 people who were treatment naive and randomly assigned them to either the standard three drug regimen or darunavir ritonavir once a day with lamivudine once a day. And the idea was they would do a phase one study, and if the results were promising, they were going to then increase the study population to have a fully powered trial. Uh, and this is the results of the phase one and showed very high rates of virologic suppression, including in the 25%, not huge numbers, but 25% of individuals who had viral loads of greater than 100,000. So now an option, perhaps using a first-line PI, recognizing that the, the sample size is still fairly small. Now another fully powered study that was attempting to look at the potential of dual therapy was using a boosted PI with an integrase as opposed to a boosted PI with two nukes. In this case, it was darunavir-ritonavir with twice-a-day raltegravir versus darunavir-ritonavir with tenofovir disproxyl fumarate amtricitabine. Again, fully powered, 800-patient study. And it showed very high rates of virologic suppression across the group. And for the primary endpoint of non-inferiority, the two-drug regimen met non-inferiority. However, when they did the subgroup analyses and they looked at those who had CD4s of less than 200 or viral loads of greater than 100,000, it seemed pretty clear that for reasons that aren't well understood, the two-drug regimen was not as good as the three-drug regimen. So when you think about the guidelines, the guidelines acknowledge that there are people in which tenofovir and abacavir may not be a reasonable option and that may be looking for two-drug regimens. And this was added as another two-drug regimen for consideration in very select patients, although with the important footnote, and this was true in the US and European guidelines, that it wouldn't be appropriate for people with viral loads of over 100,000 or CD4 of less than 200. And then came along some very early pilot data saying, well, boosted PIs are great and a natural because of their high barrier to resistance to consider as dual drug therapy. But now a new integrase inhibitor had come along and that was dolutegravir that was increasingly demonstrating that it too had a high genetic barrier to resistance. And I'm not here to sort of review all of the data, but it's pretty robust. There's gotta be now seven or eight fully powered registrational trials with dolutegravir and two nukes and treatment naive patients and have demonstrated high virologic suppression, and yet not a single person who's selected for resistance to any of the drugs in the regimen. There were also some monotherapy studies with dolutegravir that were considered failures and certainly is not to be recommended, but a lot of the people did get suppressed. So there's a lot of data with dolutegravir um, bearing a lot of the weight of a regimen. So people thought about dolutegravir 3TC. It started with the PADL study, 10 very carefully selected individuals following them on a two-drug regimen showing they didn't experience virologic failure at a significant rate, expanded it to 20 people, then an ACTG study of 125 people. The PADL study limited it to people with virals of less than 100,000. The ACTG study included about 25% who had viral loads between 100 and 500,000. And it too looked promising, although it is always worth reminding everybody as this whole concept of dolutegravir 3TC begins to emerge, that in the ACTG study, 125 patient study, there was a single individual that failed with 
nuke and integrase resistance. And you could say, well, one out of 125, that doesn't sound so bad, and it certainly is not. But it does raise some concerns because there have now been literally thousands of people in clinical trials on dolutegravir with two nukes without a single case of any resistance, yet alone integrase resistance. So they decided to move forward with two large registrational trials of dolutegravir 3TC, Gemini 1, Gemini 2. So it was dolutegravir with one nuke versus two nukes and treatment-naive patients. They were all carefully studied in a few ways. One was they all had to be treatment-naive. They all had to have a genotype available and had no evidence of resistance. And that's not just resistance to the drugs in the regimen. They didn't have any resistance. In addition, they couldn't be hepatitis B positive because they were only going to get one hep B active drug. And they randomly assigned them, and this is showing you the primary endpoint, showing clearly non-inferiority. And in the subgroup analysis, you can see across all these parameters, I hope this projects a little bit in the back of the room. But the bottom line is you can see everything overlaps. Let's see if I can, not sure if I can figure out, I should know where the pointer is. Whoops. That's not it. This is the thing that looks like a pen. The thing that looks like a pointer. Okay. Thank you. So again, the, the most important thing is that everything is overlapping zero. You know, clearly overlapping, not showing anything favoring one over the other, with one exception, and that's a CD4 count of less than 200. And the relative, the number of people in this group were relatively small. But there was a difference, and they carefully described initially in the presentation, more recently in the publication of this data, they recently described who those people were, and for the most part, it was not apparent that this was driven by rhyrologic failure. However, this difference did emerge. And this, as you probably know, was approved just uh, not too long ago, on April 8th, for treatment-naive patients. There was a few interesting things. And I neglected to mention that the original Gemini 1 and 2 trials did limit enrollment to people who had screening viral loads of less than 500,000. And that was based upon the early data, phase 2 data available from the ACTG trial. That was the group. They did report that 2% of the people enrolled, so 1,400 patients, about 14 in each group, did have a viral load at baseline above 500,000. So a small subset, over 500,000, screened at less than 500, but 500,000 at the time of um, enrollment at baseline. And they showed these very high rates of virologic suppression in that population. It was reviewed by the FDA. It's now been published. And the FDA's uh, interpretation of the data was that it should have an indication for treatment-naive patients. But interestingly, it did not limit it to people with viral loads of less than 500,000, the people in which the study included. They decided, based on the information available, high virologic suppression rates, regardless of viral load, at least based on the range that was studied, including a few outliers, about 15, who had viral loads of even over 500,000, and importantly, the absence of any resistance being selected in either of the arms, including the two-drug arm. They decided that based on the 48-week data that they would approve this with the indication of all treatment-naive patients, regardless the baseline viral load, with the assurance that the 96-week data is coming. And that's really where we're at. We're anxiously awaiting the 96-week data. Presumably, we'll be out later this year to make sure that this data all holds up. 
but it is out there and it's now available as a single pill, two drug option. And it's current in the guidelines is listed as an option for which there's very good data in patients that you don't want to use tenofovir or vacavir. Whether that will change when the 96-week data comes out, if it confirms the 48-week data, uh, in the guidelines remains to be seen. So what about virologically suppressed individuals? So if we think about the naive so far, we know we've got some boosted PI3TC-based regimens and we have dolutegravir and 3TC. And that's it as far as two drug options in naives. Oh, and the, of course, the boosted PI integrase. That's for the treatment naives. Then we have a lot of studies now that are taking people who are virologically suppressed and simplifying them to two drug regimens. So this is just a summary of several of those studies with boosted PIs and 3TC. Not surprising, we now know that that seems to work in treatment-naive patients. It also re works in people who are switching. We have two large trials looking at adizanivir 3TC versus adizanivir and two nukes. We have a darunavir 3TC versus darunavir and two nukes. And we have the lopinavir-ritonavir study with 3TC versus two nukes, all of which have demonstrated that in stably suppressed people, you can switch them to a boosted PI and 3TC if you want to avoid tenofovir and abacavir. And then the SWORD study, SWORD 1 and 2, these were large registrational trials. Importantly, though, we only have this data in SWITCH, not for first-line therapy. And this was dolutegravir and rilpivirine. The idea here being two reasonably well-tolerated medications, very small drug mass, would create a very small single-tablet regimen. And these were two identical phase three trials of pretty carefully selected people without history of virologic failure who are stably suppressed on an antiretroviral regimen that could include any typical regimen, PI, non-nuke, and integrase. And they demonstrated at week 48, now there's follow-up data for 100 weeks in the original randomized group to the two-drug regimen showing very high rates of virologic suppression and met the non-inferiority criteria and is now FDA approved as a single tablet regimen for suppressed individuals. Obviously, it offers an advantage in that it doesn't include, in this case, any nukes, including tenofovir and abacavir, and it is a very small pill. But it still is rilpinavir, so it has to be used with some caution in people who are taking acid-reducing agents, and it needs to be taken with a good meal to assure adequate levels of rilpinavir. What about dolutegravir 3TC in these suppressed patients? Now we have the naive data, and frankly, it's hard pressed to think of any setting where a regimen worked in treatment naive patients and didn't work in stably suppressed patients who didn't have underlying resistance to any of the drugs. So it's hard to imagine, in fact, the guidelines even go so far to make that point recognizing that we don't have data with all the regimens. But, and we now have the Gemini trial, so there's every reason to believe this will work, but we don't have the data yet in stably suppressed people. So Aspire was a small study of about 90 patients, stably suppressed on antiretrovirals, who were either switched to dolutegravir 3TC or to continue on their stable regimen and demonstrated clearly high rates of virologic suppression with very, very few episodes of virologic failure. And there's a study called TANGO, which is the phase three registrational trial, where I suspect the data is going to be coming out pretty soon. And we'll hear, finally, that we can use dolutegravir 3TC not just in naives without underlying resistance, but in stably suppressed people. 
without underlying resistance. And again, the usual advantage is it's already available as a small single tablet regimen for naives, uh, in this case also not using tenofovir or vacavir. And when you think about dolutegravir and 3TC, the other advantage globally, not quite as clear what that advantage will play out domestically is cost, right? Because where these drugs are generic, it is dirt cheap to create a dolutegravir 3TC-based regimen. Uh, and that can be widely used. And there have been some model data that suggested that globally this could save literally billions of dollars if this kind of a regimen were rolled out. So these are the current US guidelines, DHHS, IAS, USA, looking at two drug regimens. Neither of them, as you know from the original table, are recommending these regimens for first-line therapy. Um, but they do recognize that there are an increasing amount of data for several of these options, both in treatment naive as well as stably suppressed people. And there may be select settings where this would be particularly advantageous. Again, I think probably the biggest unknown for most of us is where dolutegravir 3TC will ultimately fit into the mix once we see the 96-week data, if it looks like the 48-week data. So let me ask you a question. Which dual therapy regimen has been shown to be effective for first-line therapy? Dolutegravir plus rilpivirine, adizanivir, ritonavir plus 3TC, dolutegravir plus 3TC, cabotegravir long-acting plus rilpivirine long-acting, or none of the above? Go ahead and vote. Great, 76% are correct. Dolutegravir versus 3TC. The dolutegravir pivirine was only for stably suppressed patients. That's the only group that it's been studied in. And that's also true for the boosted PI3TC. And we haven't talked about the long-acting agents yet, but those are also being developed in stably suppressed patients. So now novel drugs and combinations. Um, let me start with um, the fostemsevir. Fostemsevir is a prodrug of temsevir, which binds GP120 and blocks binding. Uh, and this was a study, a drug that's being developed for highly treatment experienced patients with multi-drug resistant virus who need new options. It's a BID drug. It's not likely to have inroads in treatment naive people. But for those who need it, who have a lot of resistance or intolerance, this will be a viable option and is probably the furthest along in development. And the way these studies were developed was that they were really looking, because it's so hard to design studies for this unique population of multi-drug resistant patients. The FDA simply said, demonstrate intrinsic potency of the new drug and then show us safety. And the best and safest way to demonstrate intrinsic potency is to take people who are failing a stable regimen and give them a brief course of the new drug as functional monotherapy. And that's what was done here. And the primary endpoint was virologic suppression after eight days. 
compared to those who didn't get the new drug. And then everybody's given optimized background and secondary endpoints are things like virologic suppression at 24 and 48 weeks. So this is the data, and when they added fostemsevir to this group of patients who had limited treatment options that you can see here at the top, these groups, the randomized group, and they added it to a group of people who had no treatment options, so who received it as just open label, they saw in that eight-day interval that there was a significant difference, 0.8 viral load reduction versus about 0.17. And that met the primary endpoint for superior virologic suppression. And then they got optimized background and were followed out longer. And the most recent data we have as far as follow-up at 48 weeks shows in the blue the proportion of people who achieve less than 40, 200, or less than 400. And this is the group that were randomized, so very high rates of virologic suppression. And even in the non-randomized group, remember these are the people who had no fully active drugs at baseline to add to fostemsevir, even at 48 weeks, 30 to 40% virologic suppression rate. So the data certainly met their primary endpoint and is likely to get FDA approved for this particular patient population. And then when we think about paradigm shifts, certainly two drug regimens with dolutegravir 3TC may be one of them. But the really the big one that we've been anticipating is the first round of long-acting regimens. And as you were all aware, it really began with the availability of nanoformulated integrase inhibitor, cabotegravir, a, a new integrase that's related to dolutegravir, at least structurally, and a long-acting nanoformulation of ropivirine, the NNRTI. And they did some early studies just to show that this novel combination of an integrase and non-nuke could maintain suppression as short-acting oral therapy in latte, and it did. And then they did LATTE2 to see whether the long-acting forms could maintain virologic suppression in a phase 2b type study, and it did. And then they launched two large registrational trials, ATLAS and FLARE. And these are the studies that we've been anxiously awaiting, and they were presented at CROI. So they're very similar study design. The big difference was ATLAS were people who were stably suppressed on any one of a number of regimens, who didn't have underlying resistance to the study drugs, and flare that we'll talk about in a minute were people who were treatment naive, who needed to be induced to get to suppress and then switch. So here's Atlas, stably suppressed for a relatively prolonged period of time, on average four years, and then randomly assigned to either continue on that regimen or to receive four weeks of short-acting cabotegravir and ropivirine. The idea here being we want to make sure it doesn't make them sick, because if they have an adverse event associated with it, there is no turning back. The drug is going to be there for months. So give them four weeks of short acting, make sure they tolerate it, which the overwhelming majority did, and then switch them to the long acting formulations, which are two injections uh, intragluteal on a monthly basis. And here's the primary endpoint. The primary endpoint is virologic failure, virologic non-response, and you can see the numbers very, very few. And then the secondary endpoint is the proportion who remained undetectable at 48 weeks. And again, that non-inferiority for both the key primary and secondary endpoint. So that's all good news. That's kind of what everybody was hoping for and expected based on latte too. The big question are things like safety tolerability. Um, in addition, resistance. So in this study, they described resistance data in three individuals. Um, all of them have this subtype A resistance, uh, genome, this subtype A, and they failed 
often with integrase resistance. And it turns out when they looked at baseline, the two that failed with this L74I, which is considered a polymorphism, actually had it on archived genotype of baseline. And it seems that it may be that this polymorphism may occur more commonly in subtype A's, which are commonly seen in Eastern Europe, and that this may be a stepping stone towards virologic failure on capotegravir. The data set is very, very small, but as I'll show you, the same observation was seen in Flare. So there's a lot of interest in further investigating it. But the bottom line is there were very, very few that actually experienced virologic failure with any resistance. So these are the endpoints. This is the resistance data. This is the key tolerability issues, looking at injection site reactions. Um, what we're told um, is that early on, it's not uncommon to have some mild injection site reaction. And then with time, incident injection site reaction seems to decline over the following months. And generally, pretty well tolerated. And when they asked people if they wanted to continue on this therapy versus the oral therapy, the overwhelming majority of people wanted to continue on the injections. And in fact, the people who received oral therapy didn't want to continue on that because they came into this study asking for long acting. So when people ask the question, who is this regimen going to be appropriate for, it's going to be appropriate for the people who want to be on long-acting therapy. They're the ones who came in the study. They're the ones who wanted it at the beginning. And the good news is after doing it for a year, they still wanted it. So while there are some injection site reactions, it's generally pretty mild. Four people discontinued out of 300 because of injection site reactions. So here's Flare. Similar study design, only people came in treatment naive. Then they all received dolutegravir back over 3TC, or if they couldn't use that, they got other nucleosides. And they got this for 20 weeks, and those who were virologically suppressed, the majority, were randomly assigned to either continue that regimen or to do the four weeks of short-acting capotegravirupivirine and then switch to the long-acting. So very similar study design, except these people had a 20-week induction period. And you could argue that this is relevant in, in trying to think about when is it safe to make the switch because Atlas was four years. And clearly, the longer someone's suppressed, probably easier it is to keep them there. So this is a relatively brief period of induction and demonstrated both for the primary endpoint, virologic failure, non-response, and the secondary endpoint, proportion undetectable, clearly met criteria for non-inferiority, and had the same funny resistance. Three Russian participants, all A1 subtypes, with some NNRTI resistance, like ropivirine, but this L74I plus other integrase mutations. So again, there's going to be a lot of work, I suspect, over the next year to better understand what's going on with regards to resistance, but still a relatively small number. From a tolerability perspective, these curves look very similar to what we saw in the other study. Two people discontinued because of injection site reactions. And again, those who were on the long acting really wanted to stay on it. Those who were on oral really weren't that interested in staying on oral. They wanted long-acting. Where are we going next with long-acting? Well, obviously, this has been submitted to the FDA, I think, about a week ago. We're told about 8 to 12 months before it'll be approved, depending on sort of which path it goes down. Uh, based on the data, one would expect that once-a-month therapy will be approved. There was pretty good data from LATTE2 that every other month therapy might work. And there's a Atlas 2M study which is taking people suppressed and randomly assigning them to every four weeks versus eight weeks. 
That study is fully enrolled, and I suspect we'll be seeing that data in the not too distant future. So that's where we're going with the long-acting regimens as they exist now. Uh, the ACTG has just opened up a study for that population that everybody thinks this might be interesting for, and those are the people who are non-adherent. And I really want to make a pitch for this because these are the tough people to treat. These are the people who are not virologically suppressed in your clinic. And my assumption is if your clinic's anything like mine, if they're not virologically suppressed now, there's a reason for it. And there's no easy solution because treatment doesn't get any easier than it is right now. What we're doing with those people is bringing them in, um, compensating them for meeting milestones to get them to undetectable and then either continuing them on their original regimen or putting them on long-acting once-a-month therapy with a crossover after about a year. So this is a unique opportunity for those people who have been difficult to engage and to get on therapy, and it's being done at ACTG sites all over the county. So I really encourage you, if you have these people in your clinic, to refer them, because of the benefit of research staff working with them, in addition, a novel combination that's not going to be available for probably at least 8 to 12 months. Lots of unanswered questions about long-acting therapy. We don't have time to talk about it now, but we can all envision you know, concerns about what happens when people miss doses, what happens when they don't show up to get their injections. What happens if we continue to worry about the role of integrase inhibitors in pregnancy, if it's a woman of childbearing potential not reliably using contraception or becomes pregnant? Lots of unanswered questions. So let's just talk a little bit about what's on the horizon, a little bit more distant horizon. Uh, one drug is Pro-140. This is a monoclonal antibody against uh, a CCR5. So again, it's only for people who have R5-only viruses, much like Mirabarok, only it's an injection that will be given weekly. And there's data looking at it for a combination regimen. There's also interesting data presented at CROI, very early data, trying to look at whether you could use this as single drug maintenance therapy as just a weekly injection. Didn't work too well at the low dose, 350. Uh, some promise perhaps at 525, and then very, very early data at 700. So we'll be hearing more about this as an option for people of R5-only virus. Another exciting drug we've been hearing about for quite a while is this 8591, a nucleoside reverse transcriptase translocation inhibitor. The nice thing about this drug is that it appears to be very potent, um, has very broad activity against even multi-drug resistant viruses. You can't see these in the back of the room, but it starts at 184V and it extends to TAMs and K65R. And if you look at the inhibitory concentrations, for the new drug, they're all way down here. So it seems like it will be an active option for people who need nuke options. In addition, it has a very long half-life. It can be given weekly. Right now, the plan is to develop it as a dual therapy maintenance with Duravirate. So we'll be hearing more about this as well. And then a first-in-class capsid inhibitor. Um, this drug, 6207, is being developed as a parenteral drug that can be given subcutaneously. And we saw very early data at CROI, mostly looking at pharmacokinetics. It acts at three different steps, pre-integration and two post-integration steps in the viral life cycle, and has a very long half-life. And they looked at four doses, 30, 100, 304, 50. And you can see as a single subcutaneous injection at the 100 to 450 dose, it had levels above the protein-adjusted EC95 for 12 weeks or more. 
So a subcutaneous injection that maintained inhibitory concentrations for 12 weeks. So again, early proof of principle antiviral data is likely to get presented in the near future, looking at how this suppresses viral load. So again, a new drug in a new class for people who have issues of resistance or tolerability, but also as we start to think about extending the experience with long-acting drugs, perhaps another long-acting option. In this case, it could potentially be self-administered as a sub-Q injection as opposed to an intergluteal injection. Very early data, though. A maturation inhibitor presented at CROI. We've had maturation inhibitors in the past that there was a lot of intrinsic resistance to select viruses that have not been moved forward. This is one that needs to be boosted with cobacistat. We saw early data at 10 days of treatment showing really good virologic suppression. Not sure this is going to move forward as a drug that requires boosting, but I think there are other maturation inhibitors in development, new drugs and new classes for people who need them. And then finally, everybody's hearing about broadly neutralizing antibodies. Again, very early in development, but they're given intravenously right now. They've been modified so that they have a very long half-life potentially. Uh, and there are a whole bunch of them targeting CD4, B3 loop, and other sites on the virus that neutralize the majority of viruses circulating in the population. Not surprisingly, resistance will emerge when they're used as a single agent. Uh, but there's been some promising data looking at combination broadly neutralizing antibodies here, where they gave it to people who were suppressed at time zero. Then they underwent an analytical treatment interruption and received another injection at week three and six. And you can see those who did not receive antibody, this is the time to rebound. Half of them rebounded within weeks. Those who received a single broadly neutralizing antibody, about half of them rebounded at about six or seven weeks, better, but still rebound and often rebound with resistance. And when they used them in combination, again, small numbers, they saw a more prolonged period of time to rebound. So we'll be hearing a lot more about broadly neutralizing antibodies. Again, new agents, a novel class, and potential options for long-acting therapy. So another question, which drug maintains inhibitory levels for 12 weeks after a subcutaneous injection? Pro-140, the CCR5 monoclonal, 8591, the reverse transcriptase and translocation inhibitor, 6207, the capsid inhibitor, or 8232, the maturation inhibitor? Go ahead and vote. Great, so the 80% of you who said the capsid inhibitor are correct based on the data that was presented at CROI. Pro-140 is right now weekly, and 8591 will have a long half-life, um, but it's, uh, we don't have that data yet, and right now it's being developed as a daily therapy, and the maturation inhibitor was daily with Cobacistat. So with that, I will stop. Thank you all for your attention, and be happy to answer any questions you might have. Okay, again, if anyone would like to ask their own questions, there are microphones at the front of the auditorium here. 
Okay, the first question we have uh, is in the NAMSOL study in low-income countries. Uh, why did dolutegravir not show superiority over low-dose efavirenz? And uh, moreover, why were only 60% fully suppressed on dolutegravir at 48 weeks um, if the viral load was greater than 500,000? Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure I, I, actually I'm not sure off the top of my head I recall a lot of the details about the study. Maybe others in the room do. Um, but, you know, the biggest, I think the biggest surprise was people expected a higher failure rate because of a tolerability issue, which wasn't seen. But I don't otherwise know. I don't know if there are others. Anyone Raj. have thoughts? Oh, Raj. I also thought that was a very good question. I know NAMSL was done in Sub-Saharan Africa, and one of the notable things about that trial, as opposed to the trials we do here in the U.S., is a very, very advanced population. I think um, close to 40 or 50 percent, 40 percent were CD4 count less than 200, so very different than what we see here, and then uh, very high viral loads. But it's a good point, 60% is much lower viral suppression than we're used to, and so I, I don't know if it's the patient participant population, more advanced, or some other um, issue. Okay, thank you. Um, there's a quick question with regards to patients on stable dialysis, uh, and the question is, are we able to include TAF as part of their regimen? TAF? Yeah, you know, so you know, those, those patients continue to be a huge problem for us. Probably um, the best data that we have is a study that was recently published. It was a single-arm, open-label study of L-vitegravir, Cobacistat, TAF, FTC um, that demonstrated pretty good tolerability, maintained virologic suppression in dialysis patients. And when they looked at drug levels, um, they did see increases in levels of things like FTC and tenofovir, um, but in the context of somebody who's already on dialysis, it wasn't thought to be clinically relevant. Uh, so this was published. It seems like a viable option. It has huge advantages over what we otherwise would do because it's one pill a day. Um, but I think the overall data and the safety is still limited. And I don't know if they're even attempting to move forward with this at the FDA or not. But I think it is a viable option for somebody who's looking for a single pill, as long as they have continued careful follow-up. Um, we have an interesting question here about um, it's apparent that the half-life of cabotegravir is very long, up to a year in women. Uh, for those who do not return in a timely fashion, is there a possibility of selecting for resistance mutations that might eliminate the entire uh, class vinegrase? Yeah, inhibitors? no, it's a great question. And one of the many I just briefly alluded to that we really uh, have to figure out with time and that is, what do we do with the people who don't show up for follow-up visits? Especially if we start thinking about including these poorly adherent patients in the mix. Uh, there's no doubt cabotegravir half-life seems to be considerably longer than ropivirine. The tail is going to be potentially months in select patients. And they will be at risk on monotherapy of potentially selecting for resistance. And if they do, it may very well be broadly integrase resistance. So it's something that we're going to need to be thinking about as we roll this out. My guess is when the drug is eventually approved, we're going to be targeting the people that were in Atlas and Flair, the ones who really wanted it. And we'll probably still have to put in provisions to deal with what happens when they miss a dose. They can't come in for an injection. They're traveling. They're out of town. Uh, in the studies, they sort of, they, they built into it where you could get short-acting therapy to bridge 
till that next injection. We're gonna to need to figure out how to do that in clinical practice. There are gonna be capacity issues as long as these people are gonna to need to come into our clinics to get injections. They're not gonna be self-administered. We're gonna to need to make sure that we can achieve whatever those goals are as well. So there's gonna be just an incredible amount of new challenges that are gonna come with it. But, but I also believe that it's, it's hard to not think about exploiting in the right patient populations the opportunity, if everything pans out, of coming in and you know, thinking about their HIV once a month, or potentially, if twice a month works, thinking about their HIV six days a year. I mean, it's gonna be really important for the right patients, uh, but it's gonna be partly our responsibility to make sure we've thought through what some of the potential issues are gonna be. Okay, uh, someone has a question about, a I believe this is a specific patient, but a 30-year-old person uh, with hypertension and family history of cardiovascular disease on three drug, uh, a Bacavir-containing regimen, uh, but has great compliance. Um, what current evidence would you use, or would you use, to switch uh, to dolutegravir 3TC for cardiovascular protection? Yeah. Well, so, I mean, you'd start with just dealing with the fact that the role of Avacavir in cardiovascular risk factors still continues to be controversial, but there's quite a few studies now that suggest that there may be a role, particularly in people who have multiple other risk factors, as this patient is described. And then you need to sort of deal with, personally and with your patient, how you manage uncertainty. And my view is, the way I manage uncertainty, if there's an easy alternative that puts everybody at low risk, why not take it? So that if I needed a Bacavir in somebody like this, I would do it. But if I have an alternative that I don't need it, I would probably prefer to not have those people on it. And in the patient described, that could be switching them from a Bacavir to Tenofvir or TAF, if that's a viable option for them. Or alternatively, in this world of two drug regimens, Dolutegravir and 3TC. Now, recognizing that that would be off-label right now, because we don't have the Tango data, but we likely will, recognizing that if it works in Naives, it will almost work. So I think it's a realistic option. And there has been data looking at people switched to Dolutegravir, showing at least looking at surrogates of cardiovascular risk factors and markers of inflammation in lipids, that it has distinct advantages over other drugs. So I think there's a considerable amount of data one could consider in thinking about switching off of Abacavir, whether it's to TAF, whether it's dolutegravir-rolpivirine, where we have perhaps the most robust data, or dolutegravir-3TC, preempting ultimately what we anticipate will be positive data from Tanko. Thank you. Um, here's another question. Uh, would you use uh, dolutegravir-3TC in naive patients without getting a genotype? Um, for example, same-day rapid initiation yeah. of therapy situations. Great question. Um, you know, if, if you think about the context of the Gemini studies, it was with a genotype. In fact, carefully screened any resistance, people were, were not included. Based on that and what's at stake and how little additional effort it takes to give them a three-drug regimen, at least at the beginning while the genotype is pending, I wouldn't do it. Now, if you pressed me and said, well, but we don't see much integrase transmitted, I'd say that's correct. If you said, we don't see a lot of 184V transmitted, I'd say that's correct too. Um, but I think all things being equal, there's so little downside to starting with a regimen that we have more data and more confidence with. I would start with that, with the idea that when the genotype comes back, then I can switch them if I really only wanted them to be on a two-drug regimen. 
Um, this may be a policy question, but um, the person asks, uh, the Dahlia-Tegravir 3TC regimen, uh, why isn't it yet first line for treatment naive patients? Yeah. So in, in what you mean is in the guidelines, I assume, what you, or what the questioner means is in the guidelines. You know, I think the best guess is, um, and I can't, I'm on the guidelines panel, but I can't speak for them for sure, but I think the best guess is that we feel very comfortable uh, that 48 weeks predicts 96 weeks in standard three drug regimens. And in fact, Bictegravir got approved based on 48 weeks of data that was no better than the Gemini data. I think the difference is that we don't have that kind of data with two drug regimens yet. And because of what's at stake, I think the feeling was to remain cautious and at least hold out for the 96-week data. Yeah, that's a great answer. <laughs> it makes sense. Um, and the last question we have is, um, are there subsets of patients um, who may be best treated with uh, ibalizumab, the anti-CD4 monoclonal and fosfatemivir. Are there groups of people that you would recommend that kind of a regimen? Yeah, so right now, so ibalizumab is FDA approved. I didn't talk about it because it's now approved for highly treatment experienced patients. As you know, it's given as a every two week injection, I believe, and it costs about $120,000 a year. Um, so it's for a niche population, both because of the inconvenience of dosing and frankly, the cost, not that cost is the most important factor and somebody really needs it. It's a great option for people who need it. We have the phase three trial, which was 40 people, but it's pretty convincing this drug has antiviral activity. Um, and in some of the Fostemsvir, there was a combination of these two drugs used investigationally and probably contributed to some of the good success. So I think when you're thinking about somebody who has multi-drug resistant virus, particularly with a lot of resistance to boosted PIs, and you're trying to come up with a regimen with two fully active drugs, I think it may very well be that you'll be left with infuvertide, uh, ibalizumab, and fostemsevir. And you may be choosing between those three to come up with a regimen that includes at least two fully active drugs to optimize the chance of success. So I do think there's gonna be a niche population of people in which these drugs will be extremely important. Yeah. How often? Do you think that would be? I, I know it's probably fairly yeah. rare. It's, you know, there was a reason why the Ibalizumab <laughs> was approved with a phase three trial of 40 people, because there aren't that many of them, which is yeah. great news. But and it's great that, you know, it's a tribute to some of the companies that are continuing to develop drugs for which there's a very limited role for those people who really need them. So I think it's going to be very small in any given clinic. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Eric. We really appreciate it. Okay. Um